0: Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSE podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation.
1: This national experiment, the first ever in our history at seeking to reduce evictions during a time of economic crisis, has paid off in major ways. We'll need to figure out, we still are implementing. We still have to do better. There's still places and people falling through the cracks. We'll have to consider how we might better design going forward. But we should recognize that this progressive national experiment has paid a major dividend uh, by the end of 2021 in helping 3.8 million renter families. And I wanna say, Ron, you and Legal Services have been one of our absolute key advisors since April as we have adjusted and as we continue to adjust strategy to make sure that we're uh, implementing this uh, uh, as well as possible and you know having the best possible impact that we can on helping families avoid that heartbreak, stay in their homes, and be able to rebound and recover with security and housing stability and dignity from the challenges of this pandemic.
0: Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, President of Legal Services Corporation. Our topic today is the intersection of the American Rescue Plan Act and access to justice. Our guest is Gene Sperling, Senior Advisor to the President of the United States and the American Rescue Plan Coordinator. Almost a year ago, In March of 2021, Congress enacted and President Joe Biden signed the American Rescue Plan Act. The act provides $1.9 trillion in funding, program changes, tax policies aimed at mitigating the continuing effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The act focuses on a wide range of programs and activities, funding state and local governments, schools and individuals, It provides, among other things, a national vaccination program as part of an effort to reopen the schools, help for families, including providing $1,400 per person in relief payments, extending unemployment insurance benefits and eligibility, providing emergency rental assistance and foreclosure prevention assistance, increasing the value of supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits, increasing the child tax credit, increasing the earned income tax credit, and expanding childcare assistance. The act provides support for communities, including emergency grants, lending and investment to small businesses, distributing more than $360 billion in emergency funding for state, local, territorial, and tribal governments to enable them to keep frontline public workers on the job and paid and helping public transit agencies avoid layoffs and service reductions. The act did not include any funding explicitly earmarked for promoting access to justice or civil legal aid, but as we will discuss, it contains provisions having, and with the potential to have, profound effects on access to justice. Our guest, Gene Sperling, as Rescue Act coordinator, has actively promoted these justice broadening provisions and my thanks to you, Gene, for that. Gene was previously Director of the National Economic Council and Assistant to the President for Economic Policy under Presidents Obama and Clinton. Gene, welcome. For starters, the prospect of coordinating a $1.9 trillion set of programs sounds like it could be a pretty interesting gig, but my guess is reality is a bit different than our imaginations. Could you tell us what it's actually been like, the frustrations and the high points in your role as a coordinator.
1: Well, it's been a privilege of a lifetime, three times to serve three presidents that I uh, really believed in. And I think we're fighting for uh, a more progressive, a more fair uh, America. Uh, But this is a different type of job. Um, Under President Clinton, I was first the deputy National Economic Council director for four years under Bob Rubin and then Laura Tyson. And then I was in uh, the National Economic Council director job for the last four years and came back to do that for about three and a half years uh, under President Obama, was, was his second national economic advisor. You know, when you put those 11 and a half years together, you are just constantly racing from policy development to policy development. You are working on policies, legislation, you're on the front lines on everything happening that day, you're running up to negotiations. It's a incredibly rewarding, but frenetic type of policy life. So for me to now suddenly have a job where it's not about passing the legislation, it's not about passing brand new things coming happening, but actually, waking up every morning with one singular focus, and that is to make sure that we are implementing this historic 1.9 trillion dollars American rescue plan. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm so privileged and, and fortunate to have this job. If you if you love public policy and you believe in public policy, uh, it, it is an extraordinary job. Uh, you know, in several ways. One. When you have something as large as the American Rescue Plan done under emergency context, you're not really free from policy. There is an enormous amount of policy that still has to be developed, adjusted, created uh, in the implementation and guidance uh, and delivery of all these plans. This was one of the things that Ron Klain, our White House Chief of Staff, said to me at the beginning. Is he said you will have plenty of policy development in this job. And there's no question that that has um, been the case. Uh, but I think that you know, perhaps it's you can get a sense of the division in, in a few ways. There were first of all, the programs and policies that went directly from the federal government to somebody, an individual, a small business in need. That's the economic impact payments that were $1,400 a person, that that my very first days on the job, that was the first thing, making sure that was getting out fast, not just to the public at large, but to Social Security recipients, to veterans uh, recipients who might not have normally uh, been eligible for a tax credit or filed. Uh, Another type was the child tax credit. I think there is probably you know, no issue, or I'd say among the three issues that we might have devoted the most time, it was to the child tax credit. Now, the child tax credit was historic. It was $3,000 for a child six to 17, $3,600 for a child under 16. For those who care about economic justice, it was the first child tax credit ever, where the poorest family, the poorest children got the same amount as an upper middle class family. Before that passed, 27 million children, half of all Hispanic and African-American children did not get the full child tax credit. Because of the policy in the child tax credit, uh, uh, everybody gets the same amount. But the challenge was, we were only told to deliver it periodically, but could we do it monthly? Could we do it by July? Uh, could we get it so people didn't just get the p- payment, but they got it on the same day every month? That was a uh, you know enormous challenge. And we had a great partnership. My team was on the phone with the Treasury Department tax policy teams three times a week, every week, working through every issue. And then they would discuss those things with the IRS. This really was government working together that was an enormous implementation challenge. You know, it took it took years to get Social Security Affordable Care Act. These things take time. This passed in March, and we were doing monthly payments to 61 million children by July on the same day, the 15th of every month. Uh, so those are the type of programs where you really uh, control how the federal government delivers. There are. Some other proposed programs, however, where the funds flow directly to state and local governments. And in that case, uh, uh, you know, our job is to put forward the best policies there for the state and local governments, but these are new programs in an emergency. And so this takes enormous amount of uh, uh, listening, learning, you know, talking to people, like yourself, I mean, Ron. You know, in the emergency rental assistance, we were in a we were just in a constant flood of talking to, you know, advocates uh, uh, like Diane Yantel or legal service experts like yourself or academic experts like Matthew Desmond. But just then, hundreds of of people on the ground advocating, giving funds. Uh, you know, you're just you're trying to learn what's going right, what's going wrong, and you do not have time. To wait a year. You do not have time for reflection. I've been part of evidence-based programs where you want to go out and do a random controlled experiment, and after a year or two, you <laughs> try to figure out what the best policy is. Here, you're getting money out and you have to look week by week. I always thought of that Mike Tyson line, the boxer, where he said, you know, my my opponents come at me with a lot of strategy and I just hit them in the face. Well. That's kind of how I felt like you want to have this long-term considered random controlled experiment figure things out over one or two years and life is hitting you in the face every week. And so perhaps you have to be more like perhaps maybe people in battle are you have to do you have to do the best evidence you can. You have to do the best feedback. You have to be dynamic and flexible and it's not just about listening, it's about listening and responding. And so those programs, the state and local program, which is $350 billion, the child care, which is $39 billion, the emergency rental systems, which is a total of $46 billion, these monies flow to the states, and that requires you know, a, a whole different type of implementation, but one that even without a lot of sticks and carrots, you can still influence if you use the full powers of the administration, the full bully pulpit uh, of the president of the United States. And then third, I'd say you are, you're you're not an oversight, uh, uh, you know, official oversight person when you're in a coordinator job. There's inspector generals, there's the prac, which is our congressionally uh, mandated oversight body, which is a series of, uh, of, inspector generals headed by Michael Horowitz, the inspector general of the Department of Justice. But it is part of your life is to make sure that you are pushing every program to have program integrity, uh, to have anti-fraud measures, uh, to make the difficult choices sometimes between when you force everybody to dot every I, uh, you know, when you when you decide that that you know, th- that you have light, life and death emergencies. What are those trade offs? Being transparent about them. Uh, so that's been a great challenge for, for me and a great, great, and very rewarding too. We've built uh, a, a real strong relationship with the oversight community. This is something where President Biden had a major impact on me. He told me very directly, uh, really before my first day. I don't believe in an adversarial approach between departments and their oversight communities. You should want their expertise. You should want it early and often you have to respect their independence, but if you let them know that you want to hear what they have to say, you can work together. And that's, that's what we've done. I meet every single week, with the, with the prac, the the our, our oversight body. I meet every other week with Gene Dodaro, the head of the GAO. We make every new program present before it starts what their controls are to my team, to the OMB team, to their IG, to the prac oversight body, all at the same time, all in one room. We call it the gold standard meeting because you have everyone there. That's a really important practice we've done. And I will say, Ron, those are not the type of things when you're national economic policy director or domestic policy director, and you're fundamentally focused on the policies and the negotiations uh, that you spend a lot of your life doing. But in these type of jobs you do, and I have found it, you know, absolutely uh, uh, incredibly important, rewarding, and just, you know, again, privileged to have another major opportunity like this, but one, you know, in a different, in a different area, the area of implementing delivery, as Joe Biden said, the, the second half that's too often ignored. It's not just passing the legislation, it's making sure the legislation works, helps the people it's supposed to is accessible to them, and that they know about it and how to and, and the impact it's having. And when you talk
0: to talk about that practical effect and getting the money out and making sure that it gets into the hands of the beneficiaries, of course, that's where I would say legal aid uh, can play a valuable role. And I, I do want to jump to that. But before I get to that, I've got a question because this is such an intensely partisan era. If, if you read any headline uh, of any uh, news service or newspaper, no matter what they're bent, uh, Uh, what you see as partisan politics. Can you talk about how partisanship has played out or perhaps not played out in the implementation of the American Rescue Plan?
1: You know, I I will tell you, Ron, uh, you know, I'd always heard that expression, there's not a Democrat or Republican way to collect the trash or or deliver the mail or, and, and I think there is a lot of truth to that. So, yes, of course, there's partisanship and you see it every day in as people battle on legislation or decide to blame the president or credit the president for something that's happened. Um, You know, that's partisanship that is very intense now. Probably not the only time in our history it's been this intense. Um, But I will say doing the American Rescue Plan, uh, I deal with less of that than most people. Um, I, one of the other things President Biden told me is that he believed a person in this job should be directly talking to governors and mayors one-on-one, that if you're listening to them, you will, you will really keep your finger on the pulse. You can show responsiveness uh, from the federal government that you're listening, that you're responding, that you're helping to uh, solve problems. Uh, so one of the things we did is that we, have engaged in massive outreach. Today, I just spoke at the National Association of County Officials, NACO, and then President Biden spoke maybe an hour later. I mean, there you have Democrat, Republican officials. Um, you know, I'm going from speaking to the past president, who's a Republican from Kentucky, to the current president, who's a Democrat, Larry Johnson, and you wouldn't feel much difference because they are focused on the front lines on their community. And there's less ideology there. It's about delivering. And it turns out there's a whole lot of ways people do want to deliver. They want to expand broadband. They want to expand childcare. Uh, they, They want to make sure that small businesses that were beaten up during the pandemic can come back. They want to expand affordable housing, and so uh, when you're having those conversations, the legislation's passed. You're more in problem-solving mode. You're more in guidance mode. So I have spoken one-on-one to virtually every single governor in the United States, uh, and uh, you know, yes, there's been a few governors. I, I, you know, I've not had a single governor say no. We don't want to communicate. A few governors set up the meeting between myself and their chief of staff and members of their cabinet. Uh, But I, but, but, but I would say 46, 47, we've done one-on-one conversations once, twice, three times. Uh, I go back and forth with several Republican governors. And I think that when they realize that you're calling and you're serious and you want to help them implement, you want to help them deliver, it just creates a different tone So, you know, I I will say that in the implementation of the American Rescue Plan, I am on the phone with Republican and Democratic governors uh, uh, every day. And uh, I would say the overwhelming amount of times I'm dealt with, there is almost no partisanship in those discussions. Of course, people will disagree. Uh, uh, Of course, the Republican governors tend to want, you know, wanted more flexibility on tax cuts. There's things like that. There, there might be, you know, things people press on that uh, uh, that would reveal a certain, you know, differences in ideology. But it's not how the conversation goes. Uh, we're on with our team. They're, the governor's there with his team, his top recovery officers, his top cabinet members, and we're ask, and they're asking us. Do you think we can get flexibility to uh, use the money for child care in this and this area? You know, we want to understand what the affordable housing rules are. We want to understand what type of water infrastructure we can do. So, you know, I will say that in this highly partisan world, implementing the American Rescue Plan, dealing with Democrat and Republican mayors and governors has been a refreshingly practical and relatively nonpartisan exercise.
0: Well, that's good to hear. Let me uh, change subjects slightly. Uh, As I said at the outset, the uh, rescue plan did not include funding explicitly earmarked for promoting access to justice or civil legal aid, but contains provisions that uh, you've already uh, used and uh, worked with uh, the Justice Department and the Treasury. and that have had profound effects on access to justice. Just to take uh, a couple of examples, uh, provisions that deal with emergency rental assistance, which you mentioned, and foreclosure prevention assistance. Could you talk about particularly the uh, rental assistance as sort of a paradigm for how getting a large sum of money, $46 billion roughly out you know, how that evolved over time and, and what the process was for undertaking and accomplishing that. Thank
1: you, Ron. Obviously uh, we've worked together on this, uh, you know, from, from April of 2021. And, you know, you've been a critical partner, key partner, the entire legal services community has been uh, a critical partner. As you know, I've called them kind of the mass unit of the, uh, you know, recovery to the great pandemic on the front lines, unfortunately having to triage at some time, but making life and death differences through extraordinary hours and extraordinary effort. I'm going to do one thing, though, I'm going to step back one moment, because I think there's a larger lesson I have also learned, or I should say, uh, maybe it's something I already believe, but now have even more conviction uh, on it which is that, you know, in this world that is becoming more and more technological, more and more about the internet, about your access to digital services, all of this is incredibly important. And yet it does not replace the human connection. It does not replace it because implementation is often about the last mile. And I don't mean last mile just in the sense of broadband. I mean, what does it actually take to get a person signed up for a benefit, to give people the assistance? And it turns out that nothing completely replaces the human touch, or as I like to think, a trusted messenger from a trusted place. One place we've seen this is in signing up for child tax credits for people, or the Earned Income Tax Credit, um, we worked on a non-filer portal with Code for America. Excellent, mobile-friendly, in Spanish, but people often still need somebody there to explain away certain anxieties, to help them perhaps file, you know, do that little extra. Um, and it turns out nothing quite replaces that. And, and you can give that different name. You can say it's navigators, which I think is a great name, or counselors, but it is that human connection. And I would say that I feel very strongly when people are going to ask me about lessons learned from the American Recovery Act, and just really my time in government generally, is that you have to devote more resources to an army of navigators of counselors. You could see this in the sign up for valuable uh, child tax credit, earned income tax credit. We're happy that people could use funds from the American Rescue Plan to do that. I see it in areas related to workforce. People come up with programs to help people who are criminally justice impacted, but then they don't always have a real program to make sure somebody helps them when perhaps they leave prison, how did they get to the community college where they were learning before? There are some wonderful pre-apprenticeship, union-based pre-apprenticeship programs that do this. These might seem disconnected, but they're not. Each of them realized that there is a valuable benefit or opportunity, uh, but with all the policy design, you've got to dedicate people who are expert at working with people and helping them access that. Think about Americans Uh, with disabilities who are way too often out of the workforce, when with a with reasonable amount of assistance, navigators help, they could be in. That whole issue really came strongly in several ways on the emergency rental assistance. One, um, it was difficult for some people in some places, once they got things going, to just make sure that people could fill out the applications. Now, we were able to solve a lot of that by simplifying the process, by having what you called self-attestation for the major uh, eligible parts of an application. Uh, We worked through that. That ended up making a significant difference in the success or the speeding up, the dramatically speeding up of relief going out. But still, there were so many people who struggled with applications but perhaps they had a language barrier, a disability barrier, uh, the applications were confusing where a real live person who they could have talked to that could have helped them could have made all the difference in the world. I think this is the most important when it does come to actual counsel Now, as you and I were just talking about here, we've always known in the emergency rental assistance, it's not all about having lawyers. Having somebody who can help you fill out an application is critical. Having somebody who can advocate uh, for you is critical. I mean, one of the things both you and I remember Matt Desmond and several uh, advocates, people on the ground, community organizers said to me from the beginning is you have to start with recognizing what is often a serious power imbalance between a renter and the landlord. And when you help equalize that, it's not like you pit one side against the other. You often allow for greater win-win resolutions. Often a person advocating and representing a renter is able to work out a win-win agreement with uh, their landlord, particularly in a situation like the emergency rental assistance, where you're actually have the funds to give complete 100% back pay uh, to the landlords. Um, But I think at the center of this is a right to counsel. I think ultimately a right to counsel is so essential. And, you know, I'm happy that $230 million in American rescue uh, uh, funds have been dedicated to increasing access to counsel. I'm uh, happy that there are hundreds of millions of dollars that have been used to court diversion reforms where eviction doesn't become the first resort, but, but is a last resort. But I think that, um, you know, all of this becomes the most possible when there is, you know, whether you call it a right to counsel or just access to legal counsel for whoever needs it, uh, you know, I, I think that is much of the heart of that. And again, it's not one size fits all. I think if I was designing an emergency rental plan, I would have counselors to help people fill out forms. I would rely on law students and community leaders who can, who can be trained or already can advocate. And then I would have lawyers, legal services lawyers, well-funded, who can both represent people and are the nexus for pro bono counsel. I've told you this before, my brother uh, does significant amount of pro bono work for tenants facing eviction in Milwaukee. He's only able to do that because there's a legal services in Milwaukee who will help a lawyer do that pro bono, who will assign them case, who will guide them and advise them. So I really do feel the legal services is kind of the at, at the center of everything. If you want economic, if you want more court diversion strategies, you need a strong legal services component. If you want more pro bono work, you need a legal service corporation. You and I were part of uh, what we organized uh, with 99 law school clinicals who are helping. We found most of them are able to get those law students to help because they're working with a legal services organization. So I do think that that it is the, the hub, the center of so many of those strategies. Now, on the lessons learned, I will say that I strongly believe going forward when we do programs like this, there should be dedicated funding. Um, you know, you can talk about whether it should be in the emergency rental assistance, whether it needed to be just for court diversion, just for legal services, just for navigating and counseling, but I would have a dedicated amount of funds because while we did three White House summits, which you were part of with us, enormous amount of, you know, got the attorney general and the associate attorney general to promote these, all the things we did, a lot of those things would have been much simpler and easier had let's say of that $46 billion, $2 billion had just been dedicated to this cause. When you have a dedicated fund, people know it's there. They know to apply for it. And you're not spending all your time having to communicate. So to give an example, we unfortunately have not passed the Build Back Better legislation. But if it did pass in the form we had it, we had a billion dollars now set aside for, uh, helping more people who are low income sign up for the child tax credit. We recognized that you need to have dedicated resources, uh, whether in that case it's for Vita centers or navigators or cross-enrollment strategies. That's essential. So I would say that I think in so many areas, having a dedicated amount for, for the the real life human touch that's going to make a difference. And I think When you're talking housing, when you're talking foreclosure, uh, and you're talking evictions, I think legal service is at the center of it. And I'll say that when I was NEC director during the financial crisis, uh, and when I've been coordinator of the American Rescue Plan, I often learned the most of what was going right and wrong by talking to legal service lawyers who were on the ground Dealing either with the foreclosure crisis or helping prevent this eviction crisis, so yes, I'm I I believe that this is really center uh, for emergency rental assistance, for future strategies to prevent evictions. But I think it is also part of a larger strategy we have to have in how we make sure we are delivering funds to the Americans who need it most in light of. the the difficult obstacles many of them may face that can only be overcome with a real live person who cares about them and is trained and qualified to work with them.
0: Well, Gene, I I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Gene Sperling, thanks for joining Talk Justice. More importantly, thanks for your thoughtful and impactful leadership in advancing access to justice over the past year and in getting the $1.9 trillion that you're coordinating into the hands of the people who need them?
1: We're, we're still working. There's no mission accomplished here. There's no celebration. Things like evictions, every eviction is a heartbreak. Um, every avoidable eviction is an avoidable heartbreak that can have major impact on people's lives. So we're at it. But I think people should understand that these things can make a difference. And even with their imperfections, even with their messiness, even with the slow startup, the work we've done together on the emergency rental assistance has led to evictions, not only not having the tsunami, but by your own numbers at the Legal Service Corporation are less than historical averages. Now, when I say that, or people say that, that's not suggesting we're done or we're celebrating, but it is suggesting that this national experiment first ever in our history at seeking to reduce evictions during a time of economic crisis has paid off in major ways. We'll need to figure out, we still are implementing, we still have to do better. There's still places and people falling through the cracks. We'll have to consider how we might better design going forward. But we should recognize that this progressive national experiment has paid a major dividend, Uh, By the end of 2021 and helping 3.8 million renter families. And I want to say, Ron, you and Legal Services, you personally have been one of our absolute key advisors since April as we have adjusted and as we continue to adjust strategy to make sure that we're uh, implementing this uh, uh, as well as possible and, you know, having the best possible impact that we can on helping families avoid that heartbreak, stay in their homes, and be able to rebound and recover with security and housing stability and dignity from the challenges of this pandemic. So thank you so much for all you've done. Thanks, Gene. Stay well.
0: Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.